Well, this is another episode of the Door of Hope Leadership Podcast. This is Cameron Hager, um, and I am joined here by my friend... Joshua P. Wilder. Joshua <laughs> P. Wilder. Make sure you get that middle initial. It's very important. Uh, You're the one who insisted on it. I, I did. I kind of I kind of set you up to have an awkward response there. We are here today to talk about another issue. This po- this podcast exists to just get conversations in the hands of leaders at Door of Hope that we think are valuable and worthwhile. Um, we rarely get to the bottom of anything we talk about, but we hope that this will be a stimulating way to start thinking about important topics of theology or church life, and more importantly, that you'll have some good ideas for how to go further and, and think further, good resources to read and engage with, etc. Um, so before we get into today's topic, uh, I think it'd be interesting for people to hear a bit of, because a lot of people might not know you, give us just the quick... 10,000-foot view of your history with Door of Hope. Oh, wow. Okay. How many minutes do I get for this? Like 30 seconds or...? 30 seconds to one minute. Okay. (laughs) So I moved to Portland in 2005 to start undergrad at Multnomah. And I ended up at a church in uh, Tigard called Solid Rock, and I met the worship pastor there named Josh White. And we became friends pretty quick because we just had similar interests and things like that. But I'd always wanted a church on the east side. I remember talking to Josh and saying, look, you don't, what are, what are you doing out here in the suburbs? <laughs> like, you belong in East Portland. So whenever you start a church out there, like, I'm already on board. And then, so when Josh told me, like, yeah, they were pulling the trigger, I said, you know, I'm all in. So that's, uh, that's the quick and dirty of yeah. my involvement in Door of Hope. So. Yeah, and then you went away for a season to Princeton Seminary? Yeah, I just got back in June through the wild ride of Princeton Theological Seminary. So Yeah, stories stories to share, for sure. Certainly, but I'd, I'm probably not for this podcast, no, right? No, yeah. no, we'll do that on another one. Sure. Um, <laughs> And then, for those of you that don't know, uh, Josh co-leads a community group for us here at Door of Hope. He's taught. He was doing men's ministry, discipleship stuff, Mm -hmm. back for a season. Um, He is an all-around solid dude, a good man that loves Jesus, and uh, I'm stoked to have you here talking. I'm glad to be here, but I feel kind of like you've just put a lot of pressure on me with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You better live up to what uh. I just said. Okay, so the subject for today is singleness in the church. We, we titled it Single, Serving, and Satisfied. Um, let's just get right down to it. Why is singleness a topic worthy of its own conversation like this? Well, you mentioned when you were teaching just a few Sundays ago that about invisible people in the church. And... It's not that singles are in, invisible per se. It's that the category of a single in the church is kind of an invisible category. Mm. Um, because rather than thinking of people as single, as that being a, um, a valuable place to be, uh, let alone remain, people are more seen as either married or to be married, yet to be married. Mm. Or, you know, they're... They're 
their day is coming. You know, there's not a sense of singleness being a lively and important time to be active as a single person. It's more like if you're single, you're on the way to being married. Because both single and married people tend to uh, have this mentality. Single people often spend an enormous amount of energy trying to find their spouse and not thinking about what are the advantages I have in being single? What can I, what, what should I be doing as a single? Mm. Uh, I think the question maybe isn't even asked, what should I be doing as a single? The, the answer is immediately, well, I should be looking for my spouse. Mm. <laughs> you know, I should be trying to get married. Yeah. And that ends up being a top priority. Mm. All right, so if, if you don't mind sharing, uh, you have kind of an interesting history with this subject in terms of being single in the church then being married in the church and then being single in the church again i'm just curious what what was that experience like for you and did you did you learn or notice anything through that process about what it's what, what it means to be single in a in a church community yeah certainly i um i was when i was before i was married in the church i thought about marriage and singleness the way that probably most people do um, I was I was striving to be married, um, not necessarily um, desperate or something like that, but you know it was the thing to do, and the time was right, and the person seemed right, and all that. And uh, my experience of being married in the church was um, was similar, probably to most people's experience, where you just um, you just go along, you know, you serve, you give, you um, you know, you do what you're supposed to do, stay out of trouble. Um, and then when, uh, when I became single again, and there's, there may be a few people still at Door of Hope who, uh, remember that whole transition for me. Um, now I think about, there's probably one sermon online that I gave before, (laughs) from during that time. Um, and, uh, but anyways, so yeah, then going to being single again was not just traumatic because you get, you because your relate your relationships are split up, but um, it was it was very eye opening because I saw some of the struggles that singles have that I just I hadn't even thought about like I didn't even think about the things that they that they were talking constantly about like I was like I haven't even thought because I was married for almost six years you know mm. so I was like I didn't even I didn't realize like these these are struggles like I, they're just so far removed from me. Um, and then, like, I became one of those people who has these struggles and <laughs> talks about these things. And, you know, and then I, I, I started, you know, noticing, you know, more and more how, you know, the illustrations that come from the pulpit are primarily like this is what they're, they're coming from the view of somebody who is who is married. And oftentimes there's there's overlap. So it, it will connect. And sometimes it, it just didn't connect. Um, and I also, another thing, and this, this could be just from the whole process is people, people who are sitting, sitting there listening to the sermon who are married, they always have, they're always touching each other. They're always doing this PDA stuff. (laughs) I never noticed that until I was single. Then I was like, wow, like everyone who's a couple is demonstrating to everyone else here that they are a couple all the time. (laughs) And that sort of like sets a precedent for like for like the normativity, if you can use that word, of of marriage. So that I was um, in some ways I was like, wow, like this is a 
this is a very different world from being from being married. You just don't you just don't notice that kind of stuff. Like you're just doing whatever it is you do, and you don't realize that other people are having a different experience of life yeah. than you are. Yeah. You know? So we sit here today. I'm married. You're single. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about both marriage and mm-hmm. singleness. Um, as with all of these, uh, we're going to be publishing a little handout that you can kind of read along with and and get a, a you know scripture references and engagement on some of this. But so be sure to download that. But in that, we kind of talked about the fact that throughout the storyline of the Bible, um, both marriage and singleness are portrayed very positively. We have, in fact, biblical characters, biblical heroes even, um, who are married, ones that are single. Um, They're both held up as exemplars for us. Um, So with that being said, let's just do a quick kind of overview. First, first let's maybe take marriage. Like, what are... What are some of the key ideas that the Bible puts forth about marriage and, and the value and importance of marriage in the church community? Marriage has, has always been seen as a good, both in Judaism and its fulfillment in Christianity. Marriage has always been an important part of the community, both, I mean, historically, in the, in the Jewish community, marriage was, in, in many ways, it was, the way to, it was a way to protect women. But... Marriage was also has also been highly valued in the church, um, because life, uh, n- new life is created through a family, which happens because of marriage. Um, the community is sustained through the institution of marriage, um, and actually societies are built on marriage. One of one of the reasons why our society is breaking down is because of the breakdown in marriage at large. Uh, if you look at poverty statistics, the almost a guarantee that you will be impoverished is be a single mother. Yeah. Um, so marriage is important both um, biblically, but also just as as human beings. It's important that people get married and have children, and that children grow up in, a, in an environment of um, committed love. <clears throat> so marriage uh, that that's. That's not just a part of the Bible. Like I said, that's in human life in general. Just sociological reality. Right, exactly. And uh, so when it comes to the Bible, you have uh, marriages regularly affirmed, both in just the example, you know, like you mentioned, the heroes. Who, who are the heroes? Who are the people that are elevated for us? But you also have key passages where, uh, where marriage is talked about directly. I mean, Paul, it's very frequently in his letters, he'll have a little... A little section in there that's specifically addressing the way husbands and wives treat each other, and Peter does as well. Yeah, and we even think of, like you mentioned, the Ephesians 5 passage, mm-hmm. um, where it's Paul's laying out this robust theology of the, the importance of what marriage communicates about the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and his church. Right. Um, so there's a, there's a deep theological meaning behind the marital institution. So marriage, if you read the, through the whole Old Testament, there's primarily two metaphors that God actually, God's the one who comes up with these for the way God relates to his people. And that is, um, God is the parent and we are the rebellious children. <laughs> and the other one is, uh, God is a husband and we are an unfaithful wife. That's, that's, you read the prophets, those are the two metaphors you yeah. get. 
And in the New Testament, that is, that is um, the way of relating to God is very similar. Jesus calls God Father, and um, we are considered children of God. I, I find it sometimes comforting that there are no adults of God. There are only children of God. Mm. And actually, if you look uh, all the way to the consummation of all things in the book of the Revelation, you have the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride for Christ. So, um, ultimately, marriage is a metaphor for something metaphysical um, that happens between us and God. Our, mm. The ultimate culmination of things is something akin to marriage. It's not the same thing as marriage. I, don't, I think marriage is the closest thing we can come to um, that, that comes closest to representing what that will be. Yeah, that's really well said. And so that's all well and good and true. Uh, I think the problem that we're wanting to address is created by the elevation or, or, or the sole focus on what we just described to the detriment of the way the Bible speaks about singleness. And mm-hmm. so um, I, th- I think we should turn our eyes there now. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people, it seems like, are probably familiar with the Bible's teachings on marriage, mm-hmm. its value, um, it's, it's sort of uh, appreciated role in the Christian community, it's symbolic meaning, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of people probably could not say the same about singleness. Maybe they're less familiar with what the Bible teaches. Um, so help us out here. What, what are some key points about how singleness is represented in the scriptures? Yeah, so um, just like we had mentioned there are, you know, your married heroes in Scripture. You also have people who are single, who are elevated. I mean, even Ruth was, for example, she, she, the reason why Boaz married her is he said, I see that you are a virtuous woman, as a single woman. Um, and you have various other, you know, many prophets, Elijah, Elisha, um, Jeremiah was told he wasn't allowed to get married. John the Baptist wasn't married. Of course, Jesus wasn't married. It was Paul. Um, so the list goes on and on of those who, uh, who are seen as living an honorable and uh, <clears throat> fulfilled life being single. But beyond, uh, beyond just simply elevating this as a, as a possibility for people, I think maybe, maybe a good way to, to approach this would be to ask the question, uh, what, say, in, in the church today, what, what do singles, what can singles contribute that, um, that maybe people who are married have, have more difficulty bringing? Like, so, for example, who, who probably offers the most man hours or, or is capable of offering the most man hours to or, volunteer or, or woman hours. hours whatever you want to call it yeah <laughs> workforce uh, you know who, uh, who who is has the time you know who has the time available to meet the needs of of the church and who uh if you were just looking purely at a, at a sort of economic standpoint if you were to pay somebody to do some of this work who would have the lower health insurance costs, you know, and the lower housing? So just what, what those questions sort of drive you towards is, 
single people actually have something available to them that married people don't have. It's not a better thing. Uh, it's just it's just a thing that singles have that marrieds don't. Just like married people have a thing that single people don't. And it's not that one is better than the other. It's just that um, one thing I think we're forgetting is is recognizing that people who are single have something very valuable to contribute to the whole community. Yeah. And indeed, in many ways, they already are doing that. But that is not. That is not known even to the people who are doing it. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily have a chart showing this is how many uh, single person volunteer hours we're getting and this mm-hmm. is how many married. And I mean, generally, just sort of as a pattern, the way a church works is the young people mostly contribute energy, volunteer hours. Those who are married with children, their contributions tend to be more financial because they're, they're a stronghold in the community you know they're stable they tend to have long-term jobs and things like that and then people who are empty nesters you know sort of retirees they end up having a little bit of both you know they have both the money and the time now um yeah so yeah and i mean this is exactly <clears throat> paul's point uh, almost verbatim in first mm-hmm. corinthians 7 when he he doesn't denigrate marriage he identifies as, as good and mm-hmm. it, as we mentioned he's the author of some of the most lofty passages about marriage in mm-hmm. the scriptures but in 1 Corinthians 7, he really does highlight the, the married man or the married woman is, is divided. Their interests are divided. They don't have the, quite the same capacity to offer to kingdom work mm-hmm. that the single person does. And so he, he even commends singleness as the preferable option in his view, um, just in terms of ability to minister and to serve and mm-hmm. to uh, make kingdom impact um, and that's just a really important point to remember. And then this isn't us making this up. This is the Apostle Paul inspired by the Spirit mm-hmm. of God declaring this to us. Um, I just think even practically of my, my own experience of that. I mean, uh, I, I love being married and I love my wife and I love my child. But um, each, you know, I, I, marriage felt like this the shrinking of a concentric circle around my life where I, I recognized the... Mm-hmm the free time available to me even to invest into the church uh, was, was reduced. I had, I had a family now that I'm responsible for and my wife's responsible for me as well. And then having a child, it, it, I felt the circle just shrink again. You know, I, I didn't know it could shrink anymore, but it, it shrank. Um, and then, of course, each, each child, each family member you mm-hmm. add into the family, um, the responsibility increases and the margin mm-hmm. decreases. And so... I think it's actually a pretty intuitive lesson that Paul's laying out. But for some reason, I, I don't know if you agree or not, it, it feels like it's one that's missed in the church. Yeah, I think that um, it is, and I'm not sure in, I'm not sure entirely why it goes m- missed. I, I have a few theories. One is that, um, well... First of all, we're sexual beings, and we want we we strive for sexual expression, and what we're also how we're instructed to to express ourselves sexually is only within a covenant marriage, um, and that being the case, the fact that you only have this one location where you can have that sort of sexual expression drives people towards towards marriage. Um, but then on top of that, we live in a highly sexualized culture. I mean, if 
somebody wants to sell you a pack of gum, they're going to use sex to get you to buy a pack of gum, you know? Um, that aggravates that aggravates it and makes things all the all the worse. And I think those are those are some of the things, some of the factors that sort of drive us in addition to many others that that drive people towards marriage. And it's not necessarily I think a a uh, denigration of singleness is certainly not a, not consciously. Um, it's more that we tend to have this mentality of um, I don't know if it's the grass is greener or that like you begin to live when certain things happen in your life. Then 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 you'll truly be happy. I mean, I'm convinced ultimately a, a lot of us what we're really working towards is like we have some sort of picture of happiness and. That picture of us happy includes certain things, and those things are usually not what's already in our life. It's somewhere else out there. And that, for, for a lot of people, that happiness has to do with having, having a family. And this is not a, it's not a bad thing at all. But sometimes living for a reality that is not ours presently keeps us from living in the present. Hmm. We miss... We miss the good things God has for us right now because we insist on God giving us good things that we don't currently have. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And so to sum up this section, the Bible uh, from, from beginning to end, it, it celebrates both singleness and marriage as legitimate, uh, fulfilling, even strategic options for people. Um, that have their own unique benefits and um, challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, uh, you know, as we were talking about this, we realized that the, the single side of the equation does often get the short end of the stick. People tend, to, it's easy for people to not feel valued, to not be utilized, to not be appreciated, even to be viewed with a bit of suspicion if they're not married. Um, and so, as we were talking, we, we decided to sort of brainstorm just a handful of principles. And these aren't, these aren't the end-all, be-all on the subject, but they were um, just a handful of points. There's six that we felt like were, were, were meaningful sort of signposts in this conversation that are derived from biblical principles that if we as a church community here at Dwarf Hope could embrace, uh, we, could, we could not only make single people in our community feel more valued and empowered, but it would actually just be a healthier ministry that's more effective in accomplishing what Jesus has called us to in terms of uh, making disciples. Yeah. And so uh, if you're ready for it, I say we just talk through a few of those. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. You want to start with the first one? Yeah. What's the, <laughs> okay. What's the first one? Consider both marriage and singleness as uh, legitimate occupations in life. And that... Uh, that really has to do with, for many of us, marriage is almost turned into an ultimate thing when it's only a penultimate thing. Um, we didn't mention this, but it's in the handout. But marriage to our spouse in this world, as wonderful as it can be, it's a temporary thing. Um, Jesus says in the resurrection, they, meaning us, won't be married, but we'll be like angels. So um, it's it's a mistake to make... To, it's possible, and it's also a mistake, to make marriage and family into an idol. Um, so, in 
in respecting the limitations that are within that 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 a marriage brings that should also give us respect for the limitations and also opportunities that exist for those who are who are single um, so we can begin to like to look at people who aren't married not as oh they're going to be like yet to be married but rather as people who are single or if you're single to see yourself as as having particular opportunities that will not be available to you later on yeah um so what is god calling you to to forsake all the opportunities you have now in favor of something else and then when you do get married you won't have those anymore or to embrace that and it's important like i probably should mention like i'm not saying don't get married or don't desire to be married i'm not saying that at all i'm more saying don't worry about like just Follow Christ the best that you can, you know, as someone who is single, and uh, let marriage come, you know, when it does. But don't make don't make that an ultimate thing. Our, our second point that we came up with was just, and it might not seem immediately clear how it connects, but that we have to be a community that inf- affirms the importance of friendship. Um, what we what we said is that. He, Humans are not only relational, but even constituted by relationship. What when you wrote that sentence? What did you mean by that? Yeah, what what I mean is you hear actually a lot that um, you know that we're relational beings, and that's sort of like the drive to get people to do things for the community or to be involved in the community. But I think it's I think there's something more fundamental to being human being than just like we're we're built for a relationship. I actually think that who who you are. Who you are as a being is the direct result of the relationships you have had around you or have not had. Our relationships actually make us who we are by limiting us or by opening the way for us to become who we are. And that's what I mean by we're, we're constituted that way. And, and that's actually how God is too. God is constituted by a relationship of three persons. There is no other God than the God who is three persons. Um, so us being made in his image, part of that is the fact that we are not, we, we don't exist as isolated individuals. You are no longer you if that is you. Hmm. <clears throat> Parts of you die. And one of the things I love, I, I think it was in The Four Loves where C.S. Lewis mentions this. He was part of the, you know, the Inklings, which was, I think, about four different scholars there in Oxford. And one of those uh, that he would meet with was named Charles Williams. He was the first one to go on to be with the Lord. C.S. Lewis mentions in the Four Loves how when Charles died, parts of the personalities of the other people in Inklings died as well because Charles would bring out certain things, certain parts of their personality when they got together that no longer came out when Charles wasn't there. So there's a real sense in which the way a person is made is to be in such close proximity with others that their actual personality is altered by the people that they are around or aren't around. Humans were created for intimacy, mm-hmm. and sometimes we're mistaken when we we, we kind of use language that seems to in, imply that marriage is the only place where real relational intimacy happens. Now, right. Bible's clear, sexual intimacy is for marriage, mm-hmm. but relational intimacy is to be found in all kinds of relationships. You need mm-hmm. just look at the relationship between, say, David and Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of deep 
committed, uh, intimate friendship that uh, was a was a true spiritual friendship. And if if we're not valuing and creating a vision for this kind of intimacy, then singles in our church are going to get crushed under the idea right. that there's no place for them to be known at that mm-hmm. level. There's no place for this sort of depth of relationship. People who either don't get married or uh, maybe it's maybe they're attracted to the same sex and, and committed to the Christian vision of, of sexuality and marriage and they don't see marriage on the horizon, mm-hmm. um, deep, intimate friendship can be... Uh, it, it will be, it must be a meaningful significant part of our, our Christian lives together as a community or else we're just going to miss and really handicap people. Right. And I think in addition to that, a, a common um, a common lie that is believed is it's, it's a mis- mistaking sexual intimacy for intimacy. We think mm. that unless, unless your relationship with someone is sexual, it's not truly intimate. Yeah. And that is, and that is just simply false. Um, but the, the difficulty is Especially like as technology has sort of connected us and disconnected us at the same time, we have we have forgotten how to truly be intimate with someone in a way that is not sexual. And that's something that we need to bring back is how can we be truly intimate with one another and not have it not have it be sexual. So um, how how do you have uh, two people, same sex, really close friends um, who can truly uh, truly experience the the fullness of friendship um, that's not that's not easy to do and it's not easy to see in our world actually the in you know you go back a hundred plus years you can see that a little more read read the letters that friends would write to each other yeah and now nowadays people will say oh yeah well they were gay but that's but that's projecting a, a present opinion onto the past. That's yeah. not taking it for what it actually says. Yeah, we've, we, we've lost uh, what was pretty robust, uh, maybe it was generally cultural tradition, but also mm-hmm. Christian tradition of these kinds of intimate friendships. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly something we have to work to recover. So number three. We've mentioned this. Let's dive into it a little bit more. Mm, yeah. uh, we said we have to fight to end our suspicion towards singles. What's this one about? Yeah, yeah. This one uh, has to do with. Uh, well, the, I mean, there, there, are, there are a few things. One is it just personally, sort of relationally. There's almost this assumption if if a single person of the opposite sex talks to another single person. Then there must be some sort of rom- there must be some sort of agenda to uh, you know to end up together or something like that. This assumption that everyone has like the agenda of getting married, so any interaction is like the possibility of yeah. that happening. Yeah. Um, there's also and there's in some ways that's not an unfounded suspicion because I know as you know oftentimes singles. They walk into a room and they've already sized everyone up as romantic potential and non-romantic potential, and that's just a terrible way to. That's a terrible way to, to view people. <laughs> um, but if but if you know people that do that or you found yourself doing that, that would create in you a suspicion of anyone else who's trying who's who you don't know already who's going to interact with you. When they do, you just assume that they're that that that's their agenda, and it's not always true. Um, and on on the opposite side, it would would be something like, oh yeah, you know, so and so is in their thirties and they're still single. Man, there there must be something seriously wrong, you know. 
or why, married yet, or or man, why can't they just grow up and get right, married? Right, right, yeah. Come on, everyone, you know, yeah, you should be married by now. Yeah, um, as if, and that, and I think that's like the main thing is that marriage is sort of like the proper uh, way of life, and yeah, and, and the people yeah. who who don't get married. Especially, don't get married young. They're sort of the um, not not just cultural outsiders, but they're sort of like somehow protesting the system or something like that by <laughs> by not by not getting married. They're sticking it to the man, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, another another area of like you might say suspicion would be just in church leadership and involvement. I yeah. know I know yeah. as a as a man who's single, there are opportunities that I've I've been qualified for. It and denied in favor of somebody who did not have half the qualifications I did, but they were married. Um, <clears throat> so there, there have I know that there are cases in which what what people are trying to avoid is oftentimes sexual scandal, which is a real it's a real thing. Yeah, um, single people tend to uh, they tend to not be as rooted and um, as committed. Which I would hopefully this podcast is the start to like change that trend. Sure. Okay, so moving on to point number four, we said that you need to bloom where you're planted, regardless of the status, marital status you find yourself in, married or single, bloom where you're planted. What's the idea here? I think, first of all, honestly, you just have to look to God and say, am I following God because God's going to give me something? Or am I going to follow Jesus just because it's right? Because because I because I love him. I want to be with him. I want to give I want to give my life to to Jesus, no matter what that means. And so, um, no matter what situation, no matter what job, no matter what my relationship status is, I want to follow God with all my heart. You know, and I think that's that in my mind, that's a life well lived right there. That's. I think I would say if you if you want to know what your life is about, think about what it is that you fear, mm. um, and that's that's my big one is that I will have wasted my life. I don't want to die having missed opportunities, and I know that I miss them all the time. So I regularly take stock of these kinds of things, and being single, actually, I think I have the advantage of having been married and then being single. Because I know in being married, I know what you, the things you give up. And those are the things where I go, okay, well, I don't know, maybe next year I'll be married. So what can I do this year that I wouldn't be able to do next year if I'm married? Yeah. And f- for me, I mean, right now I think about the things that I, like I'm going to volunteer at a, at a nursing home. I'm going to start helping out with... Uh, um, with a high school youth group, like there's all kinds of things. My roommate Ian and I, we talk about getting on our bikes and over the summer and just driving from town to town and preaching on the streets or whatever. Like there are all kinds of opportunities that are out there that you can take advantage of if you're single and you won't be able to do any of that stuff when when you're married or at least a lot less of it. I live with three other guys. Like I, I think about Things that the crazy things that we can do together, that I wouldn't be able to do like this year for some reason. I usually don't make uh, uh, New Year's resolutions, but this year, for some crazy reason, I decided that my resolution was to watch every Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. That is what a richly uh, <laughs> nurturing choice. You made. Yeah. 
But it's one of those, it's, so this is, uh, hang on, I haven't got to my point yet, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, it doesn't have to do with Arnold movies. It's the fact that my roommates do this with, like, this is something we can do together. Like, I wouldn't be able to get my family together to do this. And it's very difficult. I'm sure you can attest to this. It's difficult to, um, it's difficult, like, like you said, when, you, when your family grows, your circle shrinks, right? So your life becomes focused on, like, on this one thing, on being probably a good father, a good husband. Um, but then what happens is, like, how does, how does your family as a core relate to the world around it? That's the challenge. Then, yeah. Is how, how does my family as a unit relate to the world around it? How do we become a witness because you end up focusing so much on your role as father, making sure your kids don't kill themselves when they're really young, and then making sure they turn into like functioning adults. Like that takes an enormous amount of energy, so it's difficult to find that relation between family and the world outside. When you're single, you can focus a lot on giving yourself to the world out there. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one of those bloom where you're planted. If you and I'm talking from like the single territory, this is how you can bloom if you're planted here. Yeah. Okay, well, the last two, number five and six, both deal predominantly with how we function as individuals in community and what what kinds of people we're surrounding ourselves with and what we can expect when we're surrounding mm-hmm. ourselves with a, a biblical variety of people. So let's take these together. Five and six are take stock of your own friendships and then be prepared to get uncomfortable. <laughs> Um, why are these important to consider in this conversation? I think they're important. Remember what we said earlier that you're constituted by your relationships. And people who are single, people who are married, occupy sort of different worlds that overlap. And I think interacting with each other, when those two worlds overlap and interact with one another, you are enriched by the experience. So it may be... A, a good way to describe this would be just to describe my last uh, my last year at seminary. I lived with a family that had two kids, and they took me in. They didn't. They they said I didn't even have to pay rent, but I wanted I wanted to. They got to to see me struggle with with both being single and trying to get my work done and trying to gather finances and you know the struggles of you know loneliness and um, the things that I had to deal with that they'd sort of forgotten about because they'd been married for years and they got kids now and at the same time they opened my eyes more to like this is what it's like to be a parent this is what you have to deal with you know your kids don't know that when they throw that it breaks and they don't know that when they throw that and it hits somebody in the head they get hurt like or they're just being rebellious and they opened themselves in their world to me in that way and that helped me go hmm how how am I like if I'm a parent how will I deal with that you know one kid comes in screaming and mom says oh what's what's you know what's wrong and the other kid realizes that that one got attention by screaming and so they start screaming and it's utter chaos and I go man I'm not ready I'm not ready for this um what would I do it gives you the opportunity as a single person to to say what what would you do in that situation you know um and I got to see them lose it, you know, get upset at the, and yell at their kids and have to go make amends with their And I, having someone else there, sort of an audience to see you sort of lose it, who isn't part of your family, it makes you think like, oh, I probably should make amends too um, and have that sort of 
that part of my life be shared. So um, it says, it's a good, it's an uncomfortable, certainly, an uncomfortable dynamic. I don't know when they had time for intimacy the people <laughs> I live with. <laughs> Anyhow, like the, the experience of sharing the same house, um, they got to go away because I was there and they're like, oh, uh, we gotta go do this. Is it okay if the kids stay here? Yeah, that's great. And sometimes I'd say, you guys need to get away. I'll, I'm just gonna be here doing homework anyway. So there's like mutual, there's mutual enrichment that goes on when you have that sort of deep but very uncomfortable <laughs> interaction. Yeah, it kind of goes back to the Galatians idea that um, there is such a there's a unity. The most unifying thing in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. that produces a church of rich diversity. So he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. Um, that should be reflected in our friendships as it relates mm-hmm. to marital status as well. You might say there's no longer any married or single. Right. Um, in, in, by virtue of our relationship to Christ, we have this unity that should transcend those stage of life or situation of life or whatever you may call it, boundaries. And hopefully we'll be a people who take advantage of that and reflect that and and do learn from one another, allow those rich relationships to develop across lines that, that tend to get siloed. I mean, right. typically sing, single people can tend to hang out with single people. Yeah. Married people can tend to hang out with married people. And w- when this happens exclusively, it's to the detriment of, of the whole community and to each <laughs> person. Yeah. Yeah. How are you going to find your future spouse if you only hang out with married people? <laughs> but that's the, way that, that's the way that most people think about it. And if you're already married, like, oh, you don't need to hang out with single people anymore because you already found yours. Yeah. But that, once again, that's a reduction of friendship to potential or non-potential. Well... There you go. That's our, our six kind of introductory principles. There are other good ones out there. We just didn't have time for them. Um, any, any closing thoughts, anything we didn't get to that you feel like, man, I'd love to mention this? Uh, it's probably worth mentioning. I mean, we didn't get, I didn't get to put this on the handout just because of brevity, but the church historically um, took Paul's first Corinthians 7 approach always said marriage is good singleness is better basically yeah um until until about the reformation which actually which in some ways was a good thing because uh in luther's time if you said i want to give myself to god what they would have said is go to the monastery seclude yourself you know be single the rest of your life and give yourself to god after Luke, there's this there's this apocryphal story that may or may not have happened of a cobbler a guy who works on shoes coming to Luther and saying, you know, I want to give myself holy to God, what should I do? And he said, just make as good a shoes as you can. Mm. And there's there's wisdom, I think, in, in not having two, like this two-tiered calling that God calls us to. In Luther's time, the two tiers were singleness and celibacy was the top tier, and marriage and the mundane was the bottom tier. And now we sort of reverse that so that marriage is the top tier and singleness is the bottom tier. That was never intended to be the case. I think both of them, when Paul says that, that he prefers singleness, it's not that ontologically there's a preference for singleness. He's thinking economically and as far as the kingdom goes. Yeah. The amount of work that you can do as, a, as an individual, that increases if you're single. But in a way, 
if you're married and you and you have a family, you're you're raising up the next generation. So what you're doing is just as just as essential and pivotal. I mean, society falls apart because people fail to parent well. That's really why, and we forget history. That's that's the other reason. But that's part of parenting. Yeah. So what, yeah. what can I say? I'm not I'm not a parent, so <laughs> it's easier for me to put these things up. Well, at this point, I'm just wiping a lot of poop off of a lot of things, so I don't know how much how far into it I am either. Yeah. But uh, it's a journey, man. Yep. I think maybe one last point remains, and that's if you're listening to this and you are single, um, the implications of all this. I, I think are very clear, and that's that singles are not second-class citizens in the church of Jesus Christ. And so if you're single and you've ever felt that way, if I personally or, or us as a leadership team at Door of Hope have ever made you feel that way, we just want to apologize now and let you know that this is something we want to be thinking through, um, and we want to find ways to empower you as singles to feel fully equipped uh, for life and for ministry and to have satisfaction where you are and hope and joy and all these things. And so if we have failed to do that, know that you're, you're free to share that. We would value and benefit from, from hearing those things. And we want to put our money where our mouth is uh, in terms of living out uh, the Bible's vision for marriage and for singleness and not some cultural distortion of it. Well, Josh... This has been awesome. Thank you for your time mm-hmm. and your hard work helping us think through this. Sure. Um, as I mentioned, we know this is just the start of hopefully a lot of conversations that happen. We've included some additional resources on the handout. There's a couple of videos you can just watch online, good, good article, a couple of books, depending on how far you want to go. These are all good, trusted resources that will help you think through these issues biblically. Um, and we hope this has been helpful. Um, that's about all I have to say. Thanks, Josh. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. All right. Well, we will catch you in a couple weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening. Oh, morning star, right?